All right. Roll around the barrel. Historic baseball podcast. We do more than talk to vintage baseball players, coast to coast and border to border. We talk about more than that now. We're bigger than that. We're a big deal. As uh, we are bringing you stories in baseball that we find to be interesting content matter that you are going to sit back and go, I didn't know that. Or I didn't know all of that. Or what? What? What did he say? And we got one of those tonight. If you didn't know this story, you're going to hear this story uh, for the first time like me. And you're going to be, what is going on with this? It's crazy. And you know who's not here right now? Rudy Frias. But you know what that means. I got my backup plan. Jeff Cougar Kozlowski, captain of the Greenfield Village Laddie Daz. Jeff, how you doing? I'm good. It's nice to know you're, uh, you're Rudy is the looks and I guess I'm the brains. So let's, let's send them in like that. Did we not know that ahead of time? I mean, was that not what it, <laughs> everyone assumed? That's what it was. When I need a fluff piece, Rudy Frias is my man. But when we're going history, Jeff Kozlowski's on the job. Uh, and Rudy Frias is going to join us, and no one's allowed to tell him I said that until he listens to this. But we have a great story for everybody tonight. I came across this article, uh, and the author is with us tonight. His name is Zachary Clary. And I didn't. I have never heard of the subject matter. Jeff Kozlowski, you have heard of this, right? Yeah, this is a, a, a very cool story here, and I'll, I'll let you do the lead off to it here, but um, it's one of those nuances in which baseball history combines with uh, periods in American history that tends to reach out and grab from different genres. So I was super excited when you asked me to, to co-host for it. I said, let me on. So there's a a part of the baseball history. There's a certain era that baseball fans hold close, near and dear to their heart. And when something comes up from that era, the Babe Ruth era, let's call it, uh, that you've never heard of before, it, it is like you feel less than. Like, how did I not know about this? How did I not hear about this? But uh, that's how I felt. So if there's a lot of you that have heard about this, great. And you're going to get more information. Or for the for the other half that have never heard about this, this is very exciting uh, information that we're about to give you. So joining us right now, he uh, contributes, and he's going to tell, I don't know much about him, but he's going to tell us exactly about him. But I believe he's a contributor to Chicago Tribune. I believe he's a contributor to the Smithsonian uh, magazine, uh, and he probably does a lot of other stuff. He's a graduate uh, graduate student specializing in 20th century politics and African-American history uh, from Vanderbilt University. The Commodores, uh, it's Zachary Clary. Zach, nice to meet you, young man. Great to meet you all as well. Um, thank you for having me. Looking forward to, to talking with you all about it. Great story. Yes, I was very interested when I came across this article and I got I got a paragraph into this article and I said, I got to stop. I got to stop. This is too much. I I have to look this gentleman up. I have to see other 
uh, literature on this thing. This can't be real. For one thing, I was like, how have I not heard about this? Is this a, a, a like a pretend piece or a what if scenario or what is going on here? Uh, but Jeff Kozlowski, you have heard of this. What did you know until you read the article by Zach Cleary? So, so the article here is a, is a great story about um, a man named Moberg, uh, who is, I, I would almost liken him to like, if James Bond played baseball, like that's, that, that's just, there's so many vibes when you read this article, Zach's article, I mean, re- it really is really good. I hope we've got it in, you know, linked up in comments section. It's a great read. Uh, and you'll really enjoy it here. But uh, one of the sources that he pulls from is from like probably the extensive book about Moberg's life called The Catcher Was a Spy, uh, right here, right here in my hands here, um, which was turned into uh, a movie, which I believe Paul Rudd was Moberg, uh, was played the role of Moberg. And it's, you know, you get the story of there's a man who had a major league career uh, but also it was almost like the major league career was just kind of a stepping stone to his grand or bigger plan of, uh, serving his country during the second world war here. So there's, there's a lot of good points and, uh, just, it, it's cool for, for Zach to be on here. Cause I, I do want to, I want to pick his brain about a few things, but it's a really, really well-written piece. So it's a good read for anybody that's into world war two or baseball. Okay. Okay, so Zach, we're going to let you go long-winded for as long as you want, giving us as much information as you want. We are going to uh, be hanging on every word that you say, but I have two questions. One, okay. one, you are more of a historian and not so much of a baseball fan. So how do you come into this subject matter and, and find it interesting? And then how do you uh, take the steps to go up to doing something with it? Great. Um. Yes, yeah, so no, I am I am a historian and I'm I'm training to be a historian at, at Vanderbilt and I study politics and, and African American history. I look at things like voting and the Senate and you know, not not baseball by largely. Um I watch baseball but I'm very much of a dilettante at watching baseball even. I'm not a I'm not a devoted fan. I it's it's fun, but I I've not had a, a, a long, you know, a long a long history with, with baseball. But like you, I and I I think I came across Moberg's story in Sam Keen's The Bastard Brigade first. That was where I first came to it. And he, he gives it, he gives you just little bits about Moberg as a spot, right? You, you don't hear about the baseball too much. It's, you know, Moberg in German or Moberg in Zurich. Um, and his, his book is about the German nuclear program. Um, and I, and I'm reading this and I, and I read the first little blurb about Moberg and it's like he, he left a career catching for the Red Sox, and then they sent him to Zurich with a gun for the possibility of assassinating Werner Heisenberg. Right? That's the that's 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 the first thing I found about Mo Berg was they sent a baseball player to Zurich with a gun to, to kill a guy. And I said, well, that's that, that's just nonsense, right? There's no way this is something that the American government did. Or I thought, you know, this this is the this is a good idea for for our, our wartime program. That this is the guy. But you know. It seems to be that, you know, but Sam Keen is the book said it and I had, I trusted that certainly. So I said, well, I've got to look into this more. And so I did. And I, I read it for about three months. I basically, I, everything I read was about Mo Berg. Um, just, just to try to get to terms with what this man, who this man was, how he came to be a person 
that, that, that operated. And it says a lot about how the government worked in the 20th century because you, you couldn't really have Mobert in, in espionage today, right? There's, there's too much restriction in place, right? You, you, Mobert had to exist in a certain moment for something like this to happen. Um, and then how did it get into to, to being something that I wrote? Um, I had written for Smithsonian Magazine before. My, my first article was a, a, a piece on Lyndon Johnson and the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And then I was already commissioned to write the Smithsonian Magazine's response to the new Netflix Fired Rustin movie. And, and they'd always said, though, in the meantime, if anything comes up that you want to write about, if it works, we'll let you write it. So I, I came across this story and I said, well, the, the only things we have are, the, you know, Dawadoff's full length biography, which is excellent. But I, this can be done in a smaller, a smaller way, right? A more digestible, you know, five to six pages that people will really get at the meat of who this man was. And that's how I got into it. I, I pitched them and said, can I just write just, you know, a, a little piece, just, just sort of contending with the, the highlights of a, an incredible story. And they said, yes. And, and that's, that's how we got it. I, I did the research and I, I put it, I put it down and I, I started with the basic outline. You know, this is, he played baseball, he Jewish, well, Jewish guy, went to Princeton, played baseball, went to law school, became a spa, right? That, that was the art. That was sort of how his life went. And I started with that basic, um, that basic outline. And then I just started filling in the, the hole. Um, and it, eventually, I, I hope I'm, I think we got a rounded out picture of this, just this, this, this strange man with, with, with basically his, I think his major passions were learning and traveling and he did everything he could in his life to, to, to pursue paths that allowed him to continue to do those two things, learning and traveling. And it, and it led to baseball and espionage for him. Um, and, and I'll, I'll get into more uh, as, as we go through the, the specifics of how some of that went down. But yeah, that, that's the, the big part of it. Just like you, incredible story that I just didn't believe made me say, well, I need to come to terms with this more. And I thought, well, the best way to come to terms with this is by writing about it, which is what I did. And I still don't know that I understand Moberg completely, and I think that's what he would have wanted. But but that's, that's how I came to it. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of little bits of information in your article that you don't get in the other uh, pieces of literature or the or the movie, which you can't really, when you watch a movie, for historical accuracy, you you shouldn't be doing that. But uh, because they change things, but uh, I believe uh, Zach and I sent an email uh, back and forth to each other when I was watching the 2018 The Catcher Was a Spy movie with Paul Rudd, and uh, so I watched that before I read your article. And the one thing about the movie that I was amazed at is what a cast! But <laughs> it had an incredible cast. Uh, but something when you're talking about a person that doesn't give you details very much into their life, you hear a lot of things like this, and this pertains uh, directly to Moberg. Moberg was a womanizer. Many thought he was bisexual. Which one is it? Or is it both? Or nobody knows. Nobody seems to know. Uh, and not that it's the most important thing about Moberg, but I think it goes to the fact that nobody knew anything about him, only what he wanted you to know. And, uh, what, is there something that when you were investigating your story, is there something that you never found out? Yeah. Um, well, and this is the big one. 
we have absolutely no idea how many languages this man actually spoke. None. We, the, the estimate is between six and 17. Um, and those are, that's a big range. So that's just the, the most clear one, because this is a man that was known for being a linguist, a multilingual. And he certainly was. But we have no clear understanding of exactly how many languages he spoke. I guess my guess is at least five, but I, I don't think anywhere near 17. So that's the big thing. Like, I think that's the, the, the big one is this, as a man of languages, we don't know how many he spoke. He said he met, he majored in modern languages, I believe at modern languages or languages at Princeton. So he was been a language. He was a languages guy, but I, I have no idea how many languages he actually spoke. And then as to the, the question you had regarding his, his, his um, sexuality, we don't, you're right. We, we don't know a hundred percent. Um, what, what would, what, what exactly his romantic situation was like. He had multiple lengthy relationships with women that we know about, but none of them, it seems serious to the point of, you know, uh, marriage or proposal or anything like that. Um, he wasn't a person that wanted to be tied down, I think is the, the strong through line in, in his life. So there was, um, there was this rumor about lots of other things. Um, the rumor was based in, the fact that a lot of the rumors started with, you know, he was a baseball player that got a really big reputation for other things, which upset a lot of other baseball players that, that just played baseball or he wasn't even that good of a baseball player that really got an, a disproportionate amount of press um, because he was interesting and fun and he could entertain from the bench. And that often upset a lot of baseball players, other baseball players. So there, there were rumors surrounding him throughout his whole life, both because he was a person that, generated, you know, questions um, uh, deliberately, I should say. He wanted that to be the case um, from the best that I can tell. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a, a long-winded answer. But, you know, it, it, there's many things. Uh, to me, the big one is, like, I don't know how many languages the name Uh Jeff Kozlowski, your question. So kind of going to that point you know, about how many languages he spoke and uh, my favorite quote that I was reawakened to uh, with this article is uh, where one of the players was talking, or they asked him about his language, and they said, he can speak seven languages, but he can't hit in any of them. Like, I, that line always cracks me up, like, and kind of like goes to what you're saying, Zach, about how, you know, he's getting a lot of press, he's getting a lot of media attention, and yet, like, why? He's a at best a journeyman backup catcher but so many people like want to know about him like do you what what do you think generates that kind of response from the media and the press absolutely and um the the, the short answer to that is jack kieran or john kieran who was a syndicated sports writer during this period um and he was one of the first that really made a sustained effort to not just reporting the story Right, he wanted to get into the players and, and the game in a, in a more in a, in a more you know hearty sense. It wasn't just oh this you know the Red Sox won or the, the Yankees won. They, they wanted to tell a story, and and Moberg was a story throughout his entire life. Moberg was a story more more so than anything else. But um, but to, to unpack that a little bit more, you know, as I'm sure, as, as everyone that's listening probably knows, baseball during this period is not how we think of baseball today. Most of the players were not. I mean, this would maybe it was their career, but they weren't, you know, working towards baseball their whole life. A lot of them had other jobs in the off season. Only the best could really make a living playing baseball, a really good living, I should say. So they, these were a lot of, a lot of just working class guys from across the country 
that that now play professional baseball. Um, and 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 Mo Berg was that as well because he wasn't you know tailor made for baseball. He didn't train for his entire life. His dad hated the game, didn't want him to play it. Um, but he he was different than most of the other players. He was a Jewish Princeton educated, uh, you know, languages languages student that went to law school in the off season and made that a requirement in one of his contracts, his first contract, so that he'd be allowed to continue to attend law school while playing professional baseball. Um, and then took classes at the Sorbonne in Paris in the off season, right? He, he was just this guy that did these interesting things and he knew how to entertain. So the, the, the quote I use, I, I, I can't remember if my editor let me keep it in, but the, the one of the quotes I had was, um, while everybody else played baseball, Mo Berg held court from the bench, right? Mo Berg was at his best when he was in a baseball stadium nowhere near the field. And that was sort of what he wanted most of the time. He wanted to sit on the bench and the press sat around and he told stories. There was like examples where he would, he would pick a word and then provide the etymology of the word just for fun. Or he'd speak, it just, just switched to a different language all of a sudden with the understanding that he probably knew more Italian or German and certainly more Japanese than the people that would be listening to him. He didn't have to know a lot of any of those languages most of the time, but he would know more than the people that would be listening, that they would be taking it down. So Jack Kieran created this character of Professor Burke, and, and that's where the press really came from, is this, is this is syndicated sports writer found a guy that could always give a good quote, and it, and it made so much e- it's so much easier to write syndicated journalists, when you could always just go to Mo Berg and he'd say something wild. And then you could just put it straight in the face. Uh, most of the other players couldn't do that and didn't do that. But, but Moberg could. So that's where this disproportionate sort of emphasis on Moberg comes from. This is how a backup catcher for the backup catcher got to be on the top of the, of all the news, you know, the sports columns and all the major newspapers is because he always gave a good quote. So uh, reminder, we're talking to Zach Clary uh, and we're talking about his article from back in August uh, of this year, back in the Smithsonian Magazine. The article's called The Baseball Player Turned Spy Who Went Undercover to Assassinate the Nazis' Top Nuclear Scientist. If that headline does not grab you, I don't know what will. When we uh, put this episode out into the ether tonight, uh, we will have a link to the article uh, in the comments section underneath the release of the podcast so everybody can read that article. If if you have not, I, I know there's a lot of people that this week read the article getting ready for this interview. I wanted to piggyback on what you were saying, Zach, is he held court. He got people's attention uh, through uh, different languages or he just knew how to talk to people and everything. But my question is, and why it wouldn't work today, is he was a third-string catcher and he goes on this tour with the best baseball players at the time, uh, and they don't even understand why he's there. And yet he seems to get away with it enough to take some video. The video turns out to really not be relevant, but there's no way questions wouldn't be asked today about why is he here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, and, it, and again, it's a, it's a crazy thing about how how baseball existed and played was played in in this period, right? It, it it baseball really mattered in 1930s and 1940s in a way that I want to say I don't want to say doesn't matter today, but it's it's not as much the American pastime today as it was in 1930 and 1940, right? Uh, Franklin Roosevelt 
wrote to Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the commissioner of baseball during the Depression and beginning of the Civil War, not the Civil War, the World War II, sorry, um, and said it, it, it's, it's imperative that the United States continues to play baseball during the war. Right? That, that was a, a policy initiative of the Roosevelt administration was keeping baseball going. Right. We're, we we got to have baseball players. They don't have to be very good necessarily, but we got to keep playing baseball. And, and so it, it was imperative to the the the, the health of the, the the nation. And and then Mo Berg was interesting because he was such an intriguing fellow, I should say. So Babe Ruth was was you know they were sending they were sending Mo Berg these baseball ambassadors is the term that historians use to to Japan to try to sort of cultivate a relationship pre-war, pre-World uh, War II with Japan to maintain some degree of uh, decorous relations with, with Japan. Because we, you know, there's a, there's a growing sense that Japan's becoming a more imperial power. They're sort of encroaching into other islands in the Pacific, and there's a fear that this is going to lead to a conflict. Um, at the time, the U.S. still still possesses the Philippines and, um, and, and you know, Hawaii and a couple of other Pacific islands. So there's an actual fear that Japan might start abutting the United States territory, American territory. So they, 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 there's a sustained effort, just as you saw in, with, in Cuba, with the baseball ambassadors to really cement baseball, further cement baseball to Japanese national pastime to create a sort of brotherhood of baseball between the two countries. Um, so in order to do that, on the one tour, they did a number of tours over there, the baseball ambassadors. Um, but on one of them, they sent all the all-stars. They sent Lou Gehrig, they sent Dave Ruth, these are the names that everybody would know, right? Um, and 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 they said, well, we'll send Moberg too, and it's sort of for the same reason. And it always was, we'll send Moberg too, because he he can probably learn enough to speak a little bit of Japanese, um, and he can put on a good show, and he can talk to the to the press over there. There was a concern because all these other baseball players they were sending were known to be crass and not very refined in a sort of technical sense. So there was always afraid, there was always a fear that Babe Ruth was going to say something just, just, just awful or depraved that was going to offend everybody. <laughs> and Mo Burke could always then speak a little enough Japanese to calm the situation down, right? So he was, he was more of like a pacifying force. But what was interesting is by the end of the tour, there's some evidence that Mo Berg is, is just as popular over there. As, as Dave Ruth and all the others. By the end of it, he's, he's put on such a good show for them that, that they're like, oh, you know, he's not as good as Babe Ruth. He'll never hit the home run. There's, he, he didn't even, I think he hit under 10 his entire career in the, in, in the, in the Major League Baseball, playing Major League Baseball, he hit under 10. He's not, he's not going to hit, you know, he was an average at best, maybe below average, probably below average catcher. Um, so he, he's not going to, he's not going to startle in his game. But, but he, he could tell a story, and I'm going to broken the record, um, but he could tell a story in a way that could make, it, it, considering the intention was to build good relations with Japan. He, he was better suited to do that than any other baseball player that could actually play good baseball that they could send. Right. So that he was sort of like a pacifying force on these missions that he could, he could, he could keep the scenes low. And um, there's a couple of, funny stories where he would, he would poke, he would jab at Babe Ruth, poke fun at Babe Ruth. Um, because he, Babe Ruth was, well, they were in one of the, um, he, Babe Ruth was flirting, I should say, with one of the young Japanese women. And, um, 
in, in Japan. And this is the evidence we have. We don't have any documentation of this, but this is what we, we believe happened. And Moberg said to the woman in, in Japanese and got her to repeat in English to Babe Ruth, just some expletive, uh, insulting Babe Ruth um, for, for doing this, right? And I don't, I don't want to use the expletive, but it, <laughs> that, that idea. You know, he, he could have fun with it. He could poke fun at the other players and just make it a good time which I think was the, the point. They didn't want to take it too too seriously in, in a technical sense. The other thing to keep in mind was that they were playing like benefit games with the Japanese teams that were around. Um, and of course, the Japanese teams were not anywhere near as good as these all-stars of American baseball. So they weren't going to win any of the games, and I don't believe they did on that benefit tour win any of the games. Um so there was, there was always a thing. There wasn't an actual real competition. It was just a way to create goodwill between these two countries. And, and Moberg could have fun. You could put him in the game. He'd make a few mistakes, which would make everybody feel better because, you know, all these other players are at the top of their game, and Moberg drops the catch. And he did it from time to time. It, it, it just, he, was a, he seemed more approachable to, to, these, you know, to, the, to the Japanese people that were um, getting there. As to why it couldn't happen today, it, I think the big, the big reason is this is – I, you know, the, the baseball ambassadorship idea doesn't operate if it's as much. There's not as much need to, um, to, to there's not as much just just will to, to to send you know MLB players overseas to cultivate goodwill, um, right? It's it's um, it's just not something that happens anymore, to my knowledge. Um, yeah, it, it it was the World War II moment. The pre-World War II moment was a very specific avenue. For this sort of like international baseball diplomacy, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to kind of unpack with that. Like, sorry to jump on you, Matt. No, there's go ahead, go ahead. I mean, you're talking about the the baseball tours and us. You know, a lot of people that listen to this are familiar in the 19th century mindset and probably know about the Spalding World Tour. And a lot of times, that's kind of pointed as that's how the Japanese got introduced to the game. And here they are years later. I think so. To Zach's point that um, you know, we're, we're trying to maintain that relationship. I want to just point up um, Mo Berg's statistics, or at least some of his career stats, um, just so we all have a frame of reference here. His first season was in 1923, and he ended, this is according to baseballreference.com, 1923 to 1939, 663 games played in that time, so roughly an average of about 40 um, a year, his, his peak was 107 in 1929. Um, he has a grand total of six career home runs. Uh, his career high in that was with Washington in uh, 1933, where he had two, and tied it in 35 with the Red Sox with two. Uh, so finished with a uh, 206 career runs batted in a career batting average of 243. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so when talking about like this guy, you're talking about the Babe Ruths and the Lou Gehrig's and like these all-stars. And then all of a sudden here's just Mo Berg. Like if, if you were looking for, you know, production out of your backup, backup catcher, there's probably other catchers you could have picked in baseball as opposed to Mo Berg. So it's pretty clear. Um, you know, why he's, why he's on here. And it, and it ain't for production out of the nine spot. Absolutely true. 
Once again, we're talking to Zach Clary, a contributor of the Smithsonian Magazine on this, in this case, uh, about the article of the baseball player turned spy who went undercover to assassinate the Nazi's top nuclear scientist. Uh, Zach, I just wanted to uh, bring the attention of the other article of yours that you brought mm-hmm. that you brought up earlier. I want to tell everybody that that was called when Lyndon B. Johnson chose the middle ground on civil rights and disappointed everybody. You can go uh, back in the Smithsonian archives to January 23rd to read that Lyndon B. Johnson article. And once again, the Mo Berg article is in the archives under August 31st. Question about Mo Berg's father. Mo Berg's father uh, believed in the American dream, wanted his kids to live the American dream. I believe one of, uh, I believe Mo's uh, brother was a doctor and his sister was, what was his sister? Teacher. Teacher. And no more American jobs than that. And he always preached that and was very disappointed that Mo played baseball and never went to see any of his games. What is more American than America's game baseball? I don't understand the disconnect there. If they came over and he wants to be this all American family and all of this, you'd figure that he would have uh, really took a grasp to him playing baseball. And, you know, it's, it's always been interesting to me because I had that same disconnect when, when, and, and all the evidence suggests that Bernard Berg, his father, was an all-American guy, right? In, in, in a, but it's in a very Horatio Alger sense of the word, which I'll explain what I mean by that. It was, um, you know, Bernard Berg was a Russian-Ukrainian immigrant to the United States. Um, he trained as a pharmacist, a druggist, and he built his own pharmacy, a largely successful pharmacy uh, in New Jersey. I believe he started in New York, but ended up in New Jersey, had to. Um, and you know, he, he was popular in his, in his town, but he, his perception of the American dream was very much so the, the United States provides the best educational and career opportunities anywhere in the world. So if you come to the United States, you get an education and you get a job, a capital J job, you know, you work from nine to five, they pay you a salary. And, and that was, that was Bernard Berg's version of the American dream. Um, Mo Berg's version of the American dream was very different. It, it was a land of opportunity in a broad sense of the word, right? It's a land where you could have all these careers that didn't exist as options in other places. You could play baseball. You know, you, these aren't things that you did in a lot of places. Um, so I, I, there was the disconnect to me was they had very, very different perceptions of what the American dream was, Bernard Berg and Mobley. You know, my, 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 my line in the piece that I, I think works, Bernard Berg had a very short list of pre-approved careers you could, you could have and be a proper American. And, you know, uh, Sam Samberg, the older brother, became a doctor, a prominent, a relatively prominent doctor um, who, who worked. Uh, if you were, um, if anyone, anyone is familiar with the radium, the radium girl, the, the, the watch dials that they were painting with radium that were, was causing all these, um, the poison that was poisoning all these people because they were painting the watch dials to go in the dark with radium. Sam Berg worked for the doctor that discovered that concern. So Sandberg had a degree of pedigree um, in the medical community. And Ethel, I believe her name was Ethelberg, his sister, his older sister, was a prominent teacher, uh, a relatively prominent teacher um, in, in New Jersey. Um, and and had a had a you know successful career in the classroom. Moberg, you know, he did not pick from the pre-approved list of uh, careers. Baseball and espionage were not on the list. 
um, but it is the direction that Moberg went. Um, so yeah, it, Bernard Berg had a uh, had a very nine to five kind of career based perception of the American dream that I don't think really comported with how Moberg had it. The evidence is that Moberg went to law school just to appease his father, right? It, he that law would have been one of those jobs, one of those careers that Bernard Berg would have liked. Bernard would have liked. So um, he did the law school thing. He, he even got hired by a prominent firm and worked for them for all of a you know couple of weeks and maybe, maybe a couple of months. I can't remember. And, and, and then left. Said I, I hate this. I just want to play baseball. And I have an opportunity to play baseball, so I'm going to play baseball. Um, and the other issue was, as I said earlier, baseball wasn't as stable a career. Was you know, professional sports is never that a terribly stable career because anybody can get hurt, and then it's all all done. But it really wasn't as stable a career then. You know, the pay wasn't good all the time, um, and certainly not if you were a backup catcher, which he became pretty quickly after starting to play the game. Um, but but he never really cared about that. It wasn't about making money to Moberg. He wanted to travel and see the world, and baseball allowed him to do that. So that was the disconnect, I think, between Mo and his father. Uh, Jeff, so we're we I think we've we we've definitely hit on a lot of parts of of Moberg's baseball career, and I think we've appeased uh, the baseball playing audience here. I, I, I'm itchy. I got some world war two questions. I'm, I'm getting, getting really itchy on. Uh, so you've got a, a fairly, a fairly forgettable baseball career. Okay. It's, it's not something that would go in the hall of fame. It's not something to be honored. You know, most people, a 15 year career would be great in this era. It's not, you know, not terribly significant here. And now we venture into the realm of the OSS. Okay, so so Claire joins the OSS, and I there are things that I've I've read here in your article, things that you've said here, and I'm looking at stuff like anti-Semitism. You know, part where he changes his name at eight years old, like he's already engaging in espionage at eight years old, kind of sorta, uh, to kind of conceal you know his his Jewish heritage. The fact that he has learned so many languages, and you just referenced here, and I don't know if that was intentional or not, but you said German, Italian, and Japanese. Like, oh, the Axis powers. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, like, this, this machismo of being, like, this American hero uh, aspects that I kind of read from here. This kind of this Bond-esque romanticism about how there's the one, there's the one spy, and I probably find it in the article here, but there's the one spy that's doing the dirty work. And he's the one that's kind of getting all the fame and glory on this. My question to you is, why does he do it? Yeah. Um, and to me, that's really kind of a, a two-part question is, why does he do it? And why did anybody let him do it? Because um, I think those are, <laughs> those are both important, right? He had to make a choice himself. But at some point, somebody had to be like, you know what we should do? Let's send a baseball player. That's who can do this, right? <laughs> and that's just wild to me. And it's, and it's wild to me the levels of power at which people were making that decision, right? Because the first person to hire him was not OSS. It was, uh, I don't remember the name of the organization. Let me see if I have it written here. But it was Nelson Rockefeller. It was the future vice president. Nelson Rockefeller ran for president a couple of times, liberal Republican, all that. Um, let me let me find it. The, the, yeah, the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. Um, and, and that was where Moberg first got his start in espionage, was, was, was with Rockefeller's organization. And it was involved in 
morale building, morale boosting in Latin America and, and the, the broader America. So his first effort in this was traveling through, you know, the broadly defined Americas to sort of boost support um, for the war cause there. But Moberg learned really pretty quickly that that wasn't where the action was, in, so to speak, in World War II. The, the Americas continentally were not going to be where, where the fighting happened. And Moberg wanted to be in the action, so we requested a transfer. Ended up with the uh, Office of Strategic Services under Wild Bill Donovan was his, uh, was his nickname, who was a, uh, an FDR appointee director of this, this, this agency. And like Wild, you know, based on his name, you can guess this, Wild Bill Donovan was a lot more interested in just hiring cool people to do cool things. He didn't really have an infrastructure of, uh, of, um, of espionage. He was just, let's, let's have some fun and spy while we're doing it. Kind of, kind of odd. He was a very serious guy, Ivy, Ivy League educated lawyer, Bill Donovan was. But, but he had a similar mindset to Moberg when it came to espionage. It was, it was spying was meant to be a, a, a game and some sort of fun. Um, and I'll go back to answer your question about why Mo, Moberg did it, but this is to set the scene about how, to, how did Moberg get the opportunity to even begin to do these things. To sort of a, uh, yeah, Bill Donovan would approve like wild things. It was just how espionage worked at the time. At one point, they, what was the specifics? They were going to sit, they were going to release radioactive bunnies in Japan or something to, to spread to spread disease. I mean, it was, it was just was weird things that he would do. At one point, they considered sending a an LA cop into into Switzerland to kidnap Nazi scientists so they could be parachuted out into the ocean to be picked up by a submarine. I mean, just 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 I mean, things that even even Bond wouldn't be doing were were just something that the OSS actually considered. But then, how did Mo Berg end up getting into this? And I don't have a great answer to that. Moberg was always surreptitious. He didn't want people to know anything about him at any point in his life. Um, he, he would say things that sort of obfuscated how his life was actually going, the reality of his life. Um, so I think there were three impulses that sort of brought Moberg into the spying game. The first one was he knew the baseball career was in. Right. There was only so many teams that would be willing to keep signing him on when he wasn't contributing anything of meaning or note or value to the team. Um, and he wasn't by this point. So that was the first thing is that, that his, his, his opportunity for income was gone or, or going quickly, disappearing quickly. But he wanted to provide a line of work that allowed him to continue to do the things that he enjoyed. And that was learning, exploring, talking to people. And it seemed to him like espionage would allow all of those things. So it, there's this one undertone was that he did it because it was the only thing that would allow him to continue living a pretty carefree life, um, which is largely what he wanted. Which you know, it's, it's wild for me to think that for him, the carefree life was spying on the Nazis as a Jewish man. <laughs> uh, but that's what it was. It gave him an opportunity. His expenses were covered. He could live at the Ritz when he was in when he was in in Paris, you know, and he did. So that was, that was the one aspect. And then there's the nationalism. He, he was a patriotic individual, and he did consider himself an honest-to-goodness, you know, pure-blooded American, uh, rightfully. And, and there was this, this other undertone that it really was. He thought of himself as contributing to what he considered a very valuable war call. And he had a certain set of skills that allowed him to do that because he could talk to people and he had this language training and this language ability. He had a certain set of skills that made him predisposed for espionage. 
um, in a way that a lot of people don't. So he did have a skill set that made it possible, and, and he was always good at cultivating relationships with people higher up the food chain than him, which is exactly what he did to get these jobs, to get this job in, with the OSF. The OIAA first, and then the OSF. Uh, my question is, when they send him over to be a, a potential assassin, does he actually undergo any kind of assassin training? No. The short answer is no. And, um, and my next question is, they give him a gun and a cyanide uh, capsule, yeah. and it's almost, he's put in a position where he probably, even if he kills Heisenberg, he's yeah. going to get caught, therefore taking the cyanide if he can, and therefore sacrificing himself for his country. And it yeah. seems like it's not that good of a plan, Zach. It, it's not. That's the short answer. Is it's not a good plan. It's not good strategy. In fact, it's a very bad strategy. It is better than sending the L.A. cop to kidnap Heisenberg, I think. I don't think that had any more chance of working either. It'd be one thing to shoot the man in a lecture hall. It's another thing to somehow get the man out of the lecture hall onto an airplane, which I don't see how that was going to happen either. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's bad strategy. And Mo Burr was a very good spy in terms of collecting information um, and sending it back. He was a very bad spy when it came to some of the, the other more physical aspects of it. He was a relatively imposing individual. I mean, he was 6'1", and most people were, but, but he never undertook any physical training to that effect. Um, the, I think my favorite story uh, regarding his spying career is when he was flying across the Atlantic. He had this gun tucked into his jacket pocket, and there was a little turbulence in the air, and the gun fell out of his jacket pocket into the lap of the soldier sitting next to him. And, and the soldier goes, did they not give you a holster? He goes, no, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. They just gave me this gun in this cyanide capsule. And then he just took the gun back and, and tucked it back into his jacket pocket and just went on his way. Like it, it, it hadn't happened. So, like, he didn't even have the proper equipment to hold the gun. But, I mean, it's just uh, – it. Sam Keen – who I interviewed for the piece had a quote was like, they, they were taking a big risk by even giving Mo Berg a gun, much less expecting him to know how to use it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 there was no, so then you get to, I think the big question is, would he have ever actually killed Werner Heisenberg? Would he have ever actually done that? I don't believe he would have. Right. I, I don't see that opportunity coming up. Um, I, I don't see him, him taking that step. Right. I, I, cause as you say, he would have to do that knowing that he would then have to take the cyanide capsule and sacrifice himself, right? I don't see any other alternative for him. He's not getting out if he does this. Um, and, and I don't see Mo Berg taking that step. But that gets to the other issue. The, 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 his technical mission given to him by, I believe it was Samuel Goldsmith, who was played by um, played John Adams. It'll come to me in a second. Um, Paul Giamatti in the film. Um uh, his, he, his, his mission was to, to render Heisenberg hors de combat if necessary, which is did to combat, um, uh, I believe the, the French that he used. And what they meant by if necessary would be if Heisenberg sounds like they're close to having a bomb, kill him. That's, that's essentially what the mission was. There were a couple of flaws with that plan. Moberg's German was at best rusty. 
and the speech was being, the talk lecture was being given in German. So he, he wouldn't have had a strong command of the German necessarily. He had basically no ex- extensive training in physics. So I, there, we, it's unclear if he would have even understood the physics if it had been in English. And, and then why would Werner, Werner Heisenberg be talking about the German nuclear program in Zurich? Like there, there was no reason for him to be talking about that stuff to begin with. So there's no expectation that Moberg could actually glean anything useful from, from the talk. So I, I strongly believe that, that, that Moberg really didn't have any under, understanding of what was actually being said during that lecture. And I think he was just sort of looking around the room with the people that did speak better German and just seeing if they looked horrified, right? Because if he looked around the room and everybody looked terrified, he might be like, oh, he's talking about something bad. This could be bad, right? Because most of these other scientists were neutral to more in line with the allied power um, that were in that room. Right. They're, they're, most of them were neutral in the conflict or more allied with the Allied Towers. There weren't many other actual scientists in that room, if any. So, so that's the, uh, to me, that, that's the thing. It, it, yeah, I don't know. It, it just goes back to how espionage worked during the World War II era. They would just send anybody, it seems like sometimes, right? They, uh, they, it, it, the, the plans weren't as well thought out. In fact, after World War II, Truman, Harry Truman eliminated the OSS. For that exact reason, there's no accountability. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. They are just approving really weird things. We need to have some degree of accountability. And that's he, he created the CIA as a concern over the fact that the OSS had no accountability and sent people like Mo Burke to assassinate German scientists. Like it didn't it, it didn't comport with Truman's idea of a post-war moment. But it goes to the, that, you know, World War Two happened quickly and, and it was all sort of by a, on the fly. You know, you had to make these big decisions just sort of for the moment. You just, you just had to make do. And that's, that's why Wild Bill Donovan was excellent at that, at making do. So that's how you get Moberg going to Zurich to, to potentially assassinate Werner Heisenberg, is that they had to make do. And he, he sort of spoke the language and sort of understood the physics, and he just as good as anybody else. To me, the weird part is they sent somebody that would have been internationally recognizable. To some extent, right? Lots of people had a Moberg baseball card. So there, it's somebody that could have been recognized. Um, and he was pretending, he was at that point almost 40, and he was pretending to be a, a, a graduate student. Um, and at the talk, at the Heisenberg talk, it was a strange uh, choice. But, you know, um, he had three opportunities to assassinate Heisenberg. He didn't take any of them. It was in the talk, at the dinner afterward, and he walked him back to his hotel. He walked Heisenberg back to his hotel. Um, um, the best record we have afterward, Heisenberg did speak to, up to this moment after the fact, right? Because he lived after the war. And he goes, I remember just having a conversation with a very strange fella that claimed to be a graduate student when I was walking back to my hotel. Um, and, and that was Mo Burke. Um, from what I, and again, all of this is hearsay, right? There's no documentation of this. It's all conversational, just stuff that we believe to have happened. Sure. Uh, can you stick around for a couple more questions before? Yeah, we let you absolutely. Uh, Jeff, why don't you go ahead and empty your chamber on World War II? Just pepper them with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and I, I, reading stuff about like you know the, the Ghost Army or the Monuments Men or like some of these some of these factions that um, you know, and even to a certain extent, like some of the best 
Hollywood producers that were sent to make documentaries about the concentration camps that were being liberated. Um, like, as, you know, everybody's contributing. There's also a certain element of a classified nature. Has Berg himself ever mentioned any of the situation here? I know he's a very private guy, but did Berg himself ever talk about Heisenberg or why he himself did not pull the trigger? Uh, so Mo Berg talked about his espionage career literally all the time. What Mo Berg never talked about was that specific moment. Right. He, he very much so played that close to his chest, that specific moment with, in that room. He, he, he talked about his, his experiences in Latin America. He talked about talking with all these Italian physicists and collecting information um, shortly after the fall um, 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 of the Axis, the, the Axis control in those areas on the fall of Rome. Um, but he never talked about Heisenberg too much after after his espionage career. Um, and, you know, I think the clearest example of this, Truman offered Moberg the Medal of Honor um, after Medal of Freedom, Medal of, I think it was Medal of Honor. I No, Medal of Freedom. The Presidential Medal of Freedom. Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah, Honor is the, the, the soldiers. Medal of Freedom, sorry. Um, and and, he, and he, he turned it down. Um, and the main reason being was they, normally when they give a Medal of Freedom, they list the accolades. Like what, what, what did he do? Why are we giving it to him? And they couldn't list any of Moberg's accolades because they were all confidential. So it was like, we're going to give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom because he was a baseball player that did some cool things for the United States. And that's like, that's as cryptic as they could be. They, they, like, they couldn't be specific. So we considered it sort of like an affront to him. Like, well, I'm, they, people won't even know why I'm being recognized. So I don't want it if, if no one's going to understand why I'm getting it. Um, and so we turned it down. His sister posthumously accepted the medal um, um, on his behalf after he had passed, I believe. But, um, but yeah, there's that. So there was this level of confidentiality. He never talked too much about it after the fact. But he never worked again after leaving the OSS in any main, meaningful sense. And he, for the rest of his life, and he lived another 30 years, give or take, he just traveled from home to home, staying with people and telling them stories about being a spy. And, and then mooching off people. That's essentially what he did for 30 years. He, he went from home to home mooching off people, telling them stories about being a spy. But it was always the fun story. Like, oh, I did this daring thing. I jumped out of a plane, et cetera, et cetera. He never talked too much about the hard moments any, anymore after the fact. But we don't know. We don't know why he didn't do it. He never really discussed it. That we know of. So, so this thus far, we've spent about almost an hour talking about how he was a, a below average baseball player and a spy that had a chance to commit this grand assassination. And he didn't do it because his German was not as good as he actually thought it was. I want to bring to something that he actually, you, you speak very highly of him on and um, a few pages before uh, where you, you say, and I'm just going to quote you here from the story. Uh, Keane says he did a good job gathering technical information from European scientists, in a sense weaponized both the disarming demeanor he perfected by telling stories in the bullpen and the assorted knowledge he'd acquired from years of incessant curiosity to cut through the defenses of his targets. So, uh, and then a little bit later, and this is the actual question I have, um, we're talking about his contribution. Keen suggests that he could offer Oppenheimer, General Leslie Groves, and other Manhattan Project leaders reassurance in some ways 
that there wasn't something they were missing regarding a potential German bomb. So we've, we've run this guy through the dirt for 45 minutes or so. What can we say positively about his, uh, his World War II experience? Absolutely. And there are a lot of positive things to say. Um, it's interesting because the negative ones are a lot more fun, which is why they come up, I think, more often. Because like when he's dropping a gun on the floor or, or, or you know, misunderstanding a talk about, about German physics, like it, that, those are fun moments. Um, but the positive things in Moberg, and again, I, I do I have a very high opinion. Of, I hold Moberg in high regard. In my scholarship, but um, yeah, it, at, during World War II, a lot of these scientists that remained in Germany uh, or, or in Europe, a lot of them came over to the United States before and during the war. But the ones that remained, um, they'd been really cut off from any degree of like intelligent, it, academically stimulating conversation for a while, a long period of time. The, the most prominent one. Let me see if I can find the name. Um, the, the two Italian scientists, their names run together in my head. They did very different things, so it's not like at all they were all similar. But uh, Fair, Fair, Antonio Ferry, maybe I, I can't. Ferry, Meitner, Cher, Armaldi. I, I'd have to check. I believe it's. That's, I'm, I'm just looking through what what's yeah. on here. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same. I believe it was Antonio Ferry, but it was a couple of them. Um, oh, he's a good example because he definitely did it with Ferry. But Cher, Paul Cher. Wasn't, wasn't Italian, but he was a uh, European scientist. Perry, all of them, they'd been cut off from um, this, this, this academic community that used to have. And Moberg was a relatively intelligent guy. You know, a very intelligent guy by the layman's term. And for these hyper-educated scientists, a relatively intelligent guy that could create, that could have just really startling, stimulating conversation. So Moberg would go in B- Boris Pass, that was the guy we mentioned earlier. He would go in and liberate these scientists, right? He would he he would go in and he was a World War One, you know, Russian immigrant, World War One Red Army, you know, fought against the Red Army, um, hyper nationalist kind of kind of guy. He'd been a, a PE teacher at a school in California, and they they made him the, the director of the Alsos mission, which was the technical U.S. Army sanctioned mission to to suppress German nuclear capabilities. I'll put it that way. And Pash, Boris Pash, was always the guy that sort of liberated these scientists. But then Moberg would come in shortly after and smooth. And that was sort of his position. Boris Pash and Moberg hated one another, I should be clear. They did not work together. Boris Pash thought Moberg was a, a joke. And Morris, Morris uh, and, and Moberg thought Boris Pass took everything too seriously. Um, and, with, and, 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 and the evidence suggests that Moberg was right to some extent, was that Boris Pass never would have gotten the information because scientists didn't like him very much. He was much too brass. So then Moberg would come in in a loose tie, you know, and, he, and he'd just talk over wine, and, and they, they, would, they would just chat, and he would get this information about the technical specifics or, or what the scientists had been working on, he could send it all back to Washington. Um, and the, the evidence suggests that by the point that Moberg is doing this, we, we uh, Heisenberg and more so Rose sort of knew the Germans didn't have a bomb and didn't have the capabilities. They're, they had a good idea. But Moberg was a person on the ground that could make them feel a little bit better about it. Right? They, they, they could say, oh, Moki, good. We don't, have, we don't have to worry about this too, too much. 
Um, and it, he, he was more of a sense of calm for these Manhattan Project scientists and, and military leaders. Um, so that's the one aspect, that, that's one half, that's one part of what Moberg was, was doing in, in Europe. It was very beneficial. He could, send in, he could collect information that the scientists were holding close to their chest that the other people never would have, the other uh, Boris Pasha's mission never would have been able to collect. So that was the, 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 the major benefit. He, he, he could talk to people in a way that most uh, espionage units couldn't. The other one was, um, actually, I guess the way to, to really illuminate that was um, he, he met with Lisa Meitner. Uh, I, I believe that's how you pronounce it. And she, she had fled from Germany. I believe it was Germany. Yeah, maybe. I'll, yeah. But she had fled because uh, she was half or partially Jewish. And she had fled during the Nazi occupation to, to us to not be executed. Um, or, or suppressed. Um, and she'd been completely shut off. And Moberg goes to meet with her. And he, she gives him a letter um, with, with the understanding that he, all, he promised to pass it on to Otto Hahn, I believe was his name, um, who was her former partner, who was allowed to stay in Germany because he didn't have any, any non, non-German blood. Um, Moberg did not pass the letter on. He kept the letter, read it, and then sent it on to Washington. He went back to meet with Lisa Meitner again after she found out that he had not passed on the letter he promised to pass on and convinced her to write him another letter that, that she then gave him and, and, he, and he used it and passed on again. Right. So like he, he'd already, he'd already sort of he broken was, the trust of the He was a went womanizer. Back, went back, got the trust again. So it, he, yeah, he, he was just a much more compelling it, much more compelling than the other people they had on the ground in terms of collecting information because most of this information wasn't written down and it had to come from the scientists themselves and Moberg could get the scientists to talk in a way that no, none of the other agents on the ground really could. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so we got a, you know, the man is, you know, at bare minimum, he's, he's solid. Okay. So it looks like he, he does some things that, that is effective, but as you kind of referenced there with his, uh, with his, with his medal, that there's a part of him that does not look fondly back at his time uh, in the OSS, and you know you mentioned it you know, right at the very end, and hopefully our our listeners will will read the article because it is, as I said, very well written and it's a fun to read. Uh, but my my last question I want to have with you here is, he doesn't speak too highly of his. Uh, OSS career. How does he look back at his baseball career? Did he ever go back about that and schmooze there? A, a, a little bit, and it's it's an interesting thing. Is and, and and you're right. He never spoke. He he didn't speak too highly of his espionage career, but I think that was because he wanted to still be doing. It. I think it was more of a he was upset because they didn't really offer him a job after the war, right? He wanted to stay on, at least that's what the evidence suggests. And then the opportunity didn't, you know, materialize for him. Um, and I, there was a little, there's there some strong suggestion that he was really upset that he wasn't allowed to continue doing this thing that he loved. Um, uh, and then, and I will answer the question about the baseball career, but I think this is the, the important bit. There was a, right about when they offered him the Medal of Freedom, they also really started hounding him about why he'd spent $25,000 while he was doing his espionage work in, in Europe. And he sort of took it as a backhanded compliment. We're going to give you this medal, but we really need you to account for this money you've spent. 
Like the, the he was he was being like he had Truman standing there with the medal, but the tax man was just behind Truman, right? The IRS guy was just behind Truman. Like what 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 the hell happened here, right? I don't. Where did it go? Well, we, no other agent has been anywhere near amount this amount of money, <laughs> and and he was and he thought that was and he thought that was a pretty you know shady thing to do. So he was more upset. There was a component in which he was upset that he wasn't allowed to continue doing this thing that he loved. Um. The weird thing is he talked about his baseball career the same way that he talked about his espionage career in some capacity. It was a thing that he loved doing, and there was an in- implicit acknowledgement in his discourse that he knew he wasn't like among the best um, at actually playing baseball, but he, he did talk fondly about it. Until the day that he died, he loved baseball. And he talked fondly about having to get up and play this game and spend a good bit of his life doing it. Um, the, the last quote I have in... Um, in my article, he was 70, lying in the hospital bed, and the last thing he said was he looked to the nurse and said, how did the Mets do today? And then he died. That was, you know, the last thing on his mind was the Mets game. Um, so, so baseball was always prominent in his life. Um, but I think he sort of was, he was a little jaded about how both of his careers ended because he thought he had a few more good years left in both, and things came about that that that, that, that didn't work out that way. And and the powers that be decided he didn't have a few good years left either. And, and they, they cut him short of where he would have liked to have been. So he loved when he'd done it and he talked fondly about it, but he didn't like to ruminate on it because then he was afraid that people would ask how it ended. And, and, and he never wanted to talk about how it ended. Uh, Zach, thanks again. I only got one more question for you, but I want to thank you ahead of time for coming on the show. Uh, and I also want to tell everybody uh, that Moberg actually wrote an essay back in 1941 called pitchers and catchers and uh that that's highly acclaimed from what i understand it still gets referenced at some point today for his thoughts on the game so that's another piece of literature you can go back on this whole subject but uh zach my final question to to end this program is uh he was a second or third string player for most of his baseball career and then he went into espionage and was a gun dropper and was 0 for 3 in assassination attempts of Heisenberg. What was he better at? Baseball <laughs> or being a spy? Oh, so, no, no, that? no. You are going to pick a side. You have to pick, pick a, a side. side. Do not, you do not go back and forth on this. No. Zach- I will. I will pick a side. <laughs> <laughs> That is the hardest question you've asked tonight. Because um, um, he, he was good at both. He just wasn't great at either. Um, and that was sort of the problem. Um, I think he was a better spy than he was a catcher. Or was a baseball player, I should say. Um, um, yeah, I'll stick with he was a better spy than he, he was a, a baseball player. But again, it you know, it just... He wasn't exceptional at either. I mean, he, he, he was just fine at both. And, and he, I think, I, I think he, he saw the stakes of being a spy to be higher. So while he was, you know, he was still out there doing weird things as a spy, there was moments when he just wouldn't report back to his handler. He'd just disappear for 12 months, you know, or I think, I think the longest one was three months, actually. But he'd disappear for a huge amount of time. And then he'd just show back up in a different city, at a different OSS office, and he'd report in, like, why are you here? You're supposed to be in Paris. Like, oh, why would I want to see the country. Um, and, and so he would do that from time to time. Um, 
so like, but, but he, he understood the stakes were higher. So I think he took it a little more seriously sometimes. Um, and I, and I think that it created a, he was more effective as a spy and he did, he did accumulate some very, some important information that got sent back to, um, to, to Washington. Um, but it could be more of a product that the stakes were so much higher as a spy that everything seems more, more grandiose. Um, and, and I think that's probably a large component of it. But yeah, better, better spy than catcher. And I do, I promise, I have a high regard for the man. But, but yeah, not, he, no, he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't exceptional at I. Zach, tell everybody where they can uh, read all of your literature, anything that you're doing now. Sure. Um, so a, a couple of different places that I'm, I'm very much so freelance in my writing because my primary I'm a, I'm a PhD student at Vanderbilt. So my primary work is in regards to that degree and, and that program. But I, I write a little bit on the side. I've written for the Chicago Tribune. I've written for Smithsonian magazine and I write with Smithsonian relatively regularly. So that's most likely where you'll see, you know, regular contribution. Um, I've written for the Washington post, um, their history, you know, subsection under the Washington post. Um, and I've written for, Gosh, um, a couple of industry publications uh, for higher education is that relevant. And I have a couple of things written for the History Channel that I'm that have been accepted, and we're waiting on publication information. Um, so I don't have anything specific regarding that yet. But Smithsonian's by far the most consistent venue. Uh, for where, my, my where, work. where can everybody go on social media to find you to track you? Well, that you know, that's a great question that I should be able to answer right off, and I don't know that I remember my social media platform. Give me, give me one second. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, here's the, here's the, here's the best way to do it actually, because it's all linked to my website. Um, so my website is ZacharyClary.Weebly.com. I haven't, haven't paid to get rid of the, the branding yet, but that's okay. Um, and I can, I can, uh, I can share a link with you all as well, if that would be helpful. Um, but all my contact information is on the website as with, as our links to all my publications and I update it relatively regularly. Um, so that's probably the best way to, to, to get all my information. My, my different handles for my different social medias are not the same. So I can't just give you one and it's the same on all of them. So it's better to go through the website. Yep. If you uh, go to Zachary uh, you can access his Facebook, his Twitter, and his email right through there, right through that page. So if you have any questions for him, I'm sure he'll answer you. Uh, the man knows the uh, the content. Zach, thank you so much for coming on this show you've never heard of before. Uh, do you know, let me ask you this as we're leaving. Do you know that vintage baseball out there exists today in its 19th century form? Do you know what's going on? I, and I will say, I don't, I know of it in the abstract. I don't know specific. I, I, I know that there is an interest in it. And I know a couple of historians that, that work on, on vintage baseball, 19th century baseball, but I don't know. I don't know. There's a mass of people across this country, many historians and teachers like Jeff Kozlowski that ha- took their love of baseball and history to the next step. And they play vintage baseball by the rules, customs and manner of the 19th century which means the first thing is they don't use gloves. Uh, and, and then there are 
certain regions of the country that will get up into 1880s baseball. So actually, this is all new material that we went over tonight because we're usually talking a little bit older. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Uh, we appreciate it. Jeff, did you want to say your goodbyes? Yeah, again, appreciate having uh, having you on here, Zach. We hope that Roller Out the Barrel is uh, up there with the Smithsonian and the History Channel uh, equal platform. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we appreciate you being on here, and I'll, I'll leave you all with a with a good little a good little quote from Moberg himself here. And when you're talking about baseball, remember that good fielding and pitching without hitting or vice versa is like Ben Franklin's half a pair of scissors. Ineffectual. <laughs> so it's all you know, just just like uh, you know, gotta be a good hitter, gotta be a good fielder. In vintage baseball, you also gotta be a good historian and a good researcher as well. Otherwise you are an ineffectual player. So have a we hope you all have a a wonderful rest of your December and uh, we look forward to talking to you very, very soon. Thanks Zach. Thank you both for having me.